0: Okay so um I'd like to begin by uh, by dedicating this class in the memory of my cousin Yitzhok Meya Hakoyen, of blessed memory, the son of my uncle Srin Noyach Hakoyen. may he live and be well so um as always. We're going to go ahead and go through the uh, a brief, you know, synopsis of the Torah portion. And uh, I'll go ahead and share, you know, little mini insight, insights as we go along. And then uh, we're going to focus on the one topic, um, which is uh, see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. So this week's Torah portion actually... Is a continuation of the ending of last week's Torah portion. At the end of last week's Torah portion, the portion of Genesis, we already have the story of how mankind at large has become perverse, immoral, and unjust. And God, already at the end of last week's Torah portion, says that He um, regrets and obviously um our 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 uh, sages express explain what the word regret means um god it, it's not regret it doesn't regret it's not like you did something you didn't realize this is going to happen um by god past present and future are uh, are all happening simultaneously so it's not like oh i regret that i did this um uh, and uh and actually, our sages give a parable, they tell a story of a certain, a certain world leader who asked one of our sages, um, did God not know that, he was, that mankind was going to go off the track and that he was going to bring a flood, so why did he originally create them? And the sage answers to that leader, that world leader, um, do you have a child? he says, uh, yes, and when your child was born, uh, did you rejoice? He said, absolutely. He says, but didn't you know that one day your child will pass away, the way of all mankind, eventually? And uh, so he answers back to the rabbi and says, yes, but the, the time for joy is a time for joy, and the time for mourning is a time for mourning. And he answered, so too it is with God that um uh, that god knew what was going to happen and yet there was the time of rejoicing in the creation of mankind and the evolution of mankind and then there came a time where there was uh, there was a time of mourning and that's what it means not that god regrets what he did and this week's torah portion takes off from that that setting that at this point god had decided that, it, that mankind is uh, evil and uh, therefore he's going to go ahead and um, erase the, um, the mankind and all living creatures. And uh, our sages tell us that God said, I made them out of sand, out of earth, let water come and erase them. So the Torah begins by telling us, Elah told us Noah, this is the offspring of Noah. Noah is Sadik. Noah was a righteous man. So, first of all, why the double language? These are offsprings of Noah, Noah was a righteous man. He could have just said, these are the offsprings of Noah the righteous man. Number two, he starts off by saying, these are the offsprings of Noah. And he goes on to say, Noach was a righteous man, and only in the next verse does he say, who Noah's offspring were, the three sons, Shem, Ham, and Yephet. So our sages explain to us that number one, the true offspring of mankind is his actions. His actions is his legacy and what he leaves this world with. So thus he says, these are the offsprings of Noah, and Noah's true offsprings weren't just his biological children but his legacy his actions and his righteousness number one number two according to kabbalah the reason why it says twice noach is to understanding that the word noach means um uh, um naicha um a good a a hmm, what's the english word comfort a a good comfort uh, a rest And just like it says by the word Shabbat, why did God make Shabbat? Because he rested. So the word Noach means comfort and rested. And we should know that mystically speaking, there's two levels of rest. One rest is the absence of stress and worry. In other words, it is not a positive concept for itself, but the absence of a negative concept. And that is the lower level of noach, meaning rest and comfort. But the higher level of noach, the higher level of comfort, is not the absence of stress, but the positive experience of rest and comfort itself. And thus, we are taught that Shabbat is made up of two levels. On Friday night, the level of Shabbat is the rest of the working week. The absence of work is that first level of rest, the lower level of rest. However, then there is the higher level of rest in which Shabbat is not the absence of work, of mundane work, but rather Shabbat is the conscious and positive, active, proactive experience of rest and peace and comfort. And that is the higher level of living. So that's just a mystical insight into why it says twice in the verse, "Noah." these are the offsprings of Noah, number one. Noah is a righteous man, Noah number two. OK. And God goes ahead and says that he's going to um, destroy all of mankind, because the entire mankind has gone perverse. And also we are taught that not only mankind, but even all living creatures have become perverse. And there's an interesting teaching here that the animals within an environment actually are affected by the human behavior of that environment. And because humans have gone perverse, so too it affected the animals of the environment that they too have gone perverse and thus god was going to wipe out all of the living creatures by the way i want to just share with you that we learn out that this excludes the fish you'll notice later on when we talk noah did not bring no fish into the ark because the fish was protected even though we're taught that when God opened up the openings of the earth, what came out was boiling heat, but nevertheless, the fish were saved. And again, falling back on the teaching that I just mentioned to you, the animals being affected by the humans in their environment does not apply to the fish, being that the fish is separated from the human beings. Then, He goes, God goes ahead and tells Noah that he should build an ark. And God is extremely, extremely detailed in exactly what he wants. He wants the ark to have three floors. The top floor is for the humans. The middle floor is for the animals. And the bottom floor is where the garbage and the waste will end up. And he gives exact teachings of the length, the height and the width now truth be said when you read the length which is 300 amot, which is according to one opinion 450 feet long another opinion will say 300 feet another opinion will say 600 feet we follow the way of the altar ever that an armor is about um, um, one point, I'm sorry, uh, 18 inches, which is uh, 1.5 feet. Now, if you really think about it, you know, try to fit in all the animals in the Bronx Zoo, which is not all the animals in the world, into a a floor, a, a um, compartment, that's going to be 450 feet the length. And um and 15 feet the height, and you're not you're not and, and and 75 feet the width, and it will not work out. So our sages give us an unbelievable teaching, which we're going to talk about soon: that within the ark there was the special experience of the messianic days, and our sages refer to this. By saying that we are taught by Isaiah in the Messianic age, right? We're taught that the lion and the lamb and all the animals will be in peace. It'll be a different experience of the living creatures. And that's what existed within the ark. And thus within the ark, there was also a different experience of space. And therefore, even though according to the simple mathematics of the verse, we would not be able to fit in seven of every kosher species and two of every non-kosher species into that dimension, nevertheless, miraculously, it was able to be so with the the ark. Now, interesting to point out, that we just say over here clearly that he was to bring seven of each of the kosher species and he should bring two, a male and a female of the non-kosher species. Now, when we read these, uh, these verses, we need to ask ourselves, how would Noah know what kosher and non-kosher is? These laws were not given until way later in Leviticus. How, how are we, in Deuteronomy, how are we talking to Noah about knowing which is the kosher species and which is the non-kosher species? Which leads us to the famous teaching of our sages that the righteous from the times of Adam, including Noah, including Shem, his son, including his great-grandson Aver, including Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, there was this knowledge, this divine inspiration knowledge of the 613 commandments. And thus you'll find our sages speaking of our patriarchs studied the Torah. Now I just want to be clear, simply speaking, they did not study the book of Genesis and the part of the book of Exodus and part of the book of Numbers in which there are stories being told simply speaking when our sages say that they they were divinely inspired and it was revealed to them the torah we're talking about the 613 commandments including the futuristic um, boundaries and and guidelines given by the sages so therefore he did know and obviously when you learn the verse you must say that he knew what a kosher species was of the split hooves, the chewing its cuds, which birds, and so forth and so on. Also, he brought in to the ark food. He would need to have food for for himself, his family, and uh, all of the creatures. And obviously there was no refrigeration then. And thus, he receives a special blessing from God that the food should not get spoiled, it should not go rotten during the time. Now, the the flood itself was divided into three stages. There was the stage where it was raining for 40 days and 40 nights. There was the stage of the 150 days in which the waters from the earth was coming up and the the windows of the heaven and the windows of the earth was opening up. Then there was the period in which there was no more water coming. However, now the water had to be reabsorbed into the earth, and that took time. And it took a little bit over a year until the, the entire story, from when it starts raining until when Adam leaves the ark on the 27th of the, seventh, of the second month that the entire flood process um, took place. And it even talks about how Noah had to wait some extra time for the muddiness of the earth to actually settle and harden. Now, another thing we're taught is that because when it tells about God telling Noah to go into the ark, it lists the males and the females separately. From here, we learn out that during the time of, of, uh, of suffering, uh, when we see retribution happening in the world, and so too was in the times of the flood, they weren't allowed to have any um, uh, physical intercourse. And uh, thus, they were told to be separate. And that's a law until this very day when there's actual suffering, when we see a plague or a, or, or a global or a um, huge suffering going on, that we do not, that we, we're not allowed to have intercourse. And over there also, our sages talk about the difference if someone already fulfilled the obligation, the mitzvah, in having children or not. And even in the obligation of having children, there's different opinions. One says a male and a female, one says... Um, two males the one that says a male and a female is because in genesis it says and god created them male and female he created them the one that says two males he actually learns it out of moses because moses only had two sons and if according to the law the mitzvah the obligation of the fruitful multiply would have been to have a daughter too so moses would not have just had two sons um, he wouldn't have separated himself from his wife after just having two sons. Um, and by the way, parenthetically speaking, there's a third opinion that says that the obligation is to have children which have children, and thus the ultimate fulfillment of, of being fruitful and multiply is actually when you have grandchildren. But be it as it may, um, that's just concerning the laws of whether you could or can't have physical relationship with your spouse while, you're, um, while the world's in suffering. And in the, in the ark, actually, there was no, it was prohibited. Um, we're actually told that there were three creatures that broke that prohibition, prohibition and they were all punished. Uh, one was one of the children of Noah, one was the raven, and one was the dog. And, and it goes on to say, how do we each punish? Anyway, moving right along over here, and what happens is that, but the the, um, the waters gathered so high, it just kept on building and building and building until it was 15 amas. Now, remember, we're talking about an ama would be a foot and a half. We're following that opinion. So 15 amas would be 22 and a half feet. It was the water reached a level of 22 and a half feet higher than the highest mountain. It lifted the ark. Now, I wanted to share with you that in the teachings of Hasidus, that is a huge teaching, a huge concept. Um, We talk about the raging waters of the flood. We refer to a verse of King Solomon where he talks about the raging waters will not be able to extinguish the instinctive love that we have for god and over there our commentaries tell us that the raging waters refers to the rat race to the consistent stress of earning a livelihood and making and paying our bills and how are we going to survive and how are we going to make money and the consistent obsessive pursuit of earning a living that we all go through So when we get into that rat race, that pursuit, that stress, that anxiety, that obsessiveness, it affects our spirituality. And thus, we're taught in the higher dimensions, what does it mean, the story of Noah in my life in North Miami 2020 and each of your lives, wherever you will be living? And the answer is, that God's telling us that, yes, your soul came down here to have spirituality. However, being enclosed within a body and within an environment where we have to be able to sustain ourselves physically, we're going to be in a rat race, and we're going to have this, this obsessive pursuit and anxiety and stress of being able to make ends meet. However, what is the, what is the secret of being able to survive this obsessiveness worry and anxiety and pursuit and be able to maintain spirituality it's to go into the ark now the word in the verse for ark is teva the word teva also means a word w-o-r-d and what is god telling us on the metaphor metaphysical individual personal level is that in order to survive the flood of the rat race of the inner turmoil you need to be go you need to be able to enter into airtight words of prayer words of Torah study and then when we're able to start our day before we go into the turmoil of life When we're able to start with airtight, what does that mean, airtight? So let's just be really practical about that. Airtight for us today would first and foremost mean to mute your phone before you start praying and before you start studying. Because I can give you personal testimony that to pray without muting your phone is not airtight. Even if you don't answer your phone, but you just want to look at what showed up, who called, what did they text? I won't answer in the middle of prayers, of course, but I just got to know. And there goes your ear tight, it's punctured, and when your words of prayer and your words of Torah study are punctured, then the outside turmoil can penetrate in. But if we can go ahead, and yes, we're going to have to work, and yes, we're going to have to deal with all of the turmoil of life, But before we allow ourselves to get into that, we go into the teva. We go into the airtight words of prayer in which we have faith, in which we consciously acknowledge that the world is under God's control and we will never make a penny more or a penny less than God has ordained for us. And that our work is but creating vessels, empty vessels for which we need God's blessing to enter and fill and to realize that God's blessing does not come through the genius that come up in my PR work and in all my tricks of how to make a living, but rather the blessing of God is drawn through prayer, through faith, through goodness, through Torah study. Then even when we go into the turmoil of the world, we live in an airtight bubble of faith and inner calmness. And thus, I want to point out even a deeper teaching in Hasidus. When we have this airtight bubble, bubble of protective bubble, of a relationship with God, a faith in God, and a very, very conscious vision of God's hand within the glove of nature, then not only does the turmoil and the worry of the outside world not drown our spirituality, but as we just said, it actually strengthens our faith, which means that the flood lifts the ark and takes it to unprecedented heights of even 15 amot higher than the highest mountain. I wanna just go one step deeper into this teaching. In, in the uh, teachings of Kabbalah, mountain is protruding and it represents deep love, great love. Now, what we're saying here is that when we go ahead and have to deal with the turmoil of life, but we don't enter into the turmoil of life before every single morning we build the airtight bubble of words, teva, the words of Torah, the words of prayer in which we consciously acknowledge and commit to seeing that God and God alone is the sole power of what takes place in the world, then our faith as we go to work and even though we see at work risky situations and we worry, but we're strong in our faith, that lifts us 15 cubits higher than the greatest natural love that we have for God when we're not challenged by faith and by trust in the rat race and the turmoil of the world. Okay, let's go on further. And what do we have here? We have that after the entire period, it says, and God remembered Noah God remembered all the living creatures that were in the ark, and God brought a wind to start moving the water so that it begins to go back into the oceans, being absorbed back into the earth. And finally, the the, uh, ark lands on top of the highest mountain. Now, the Talmud tells us that there was a king, a Babylonian king who actually found the ark, the remnants of the ark. So this is actually a physical phenomenon. There is a real ark. It's not just metaphorical. Please know whenever I give you deeper, mystical, spiritual, metaphorical insights, it's not, it's not to negate the physical story that there was a human being and his name was Noah, and he had a physical human being for a wife whose name was Naomi Nama, and, had, and he had the, they, they had physically three sons, and each of these three sons had physical wives, and thus there were eight human beings that were in the ark, which was built out of wood, made out of three stories high, and had a window on the top, and all of this was practically physically true. Now, we learn now, just to tell you how detailed it is, we learn out that the ark, because of its weight, like every boat, it actually was sunken into the water 11 amot, 11 cubits. And again, I'm not gonna always do the mathematics, but every time I say the word cubit, in your mind, translate it to a foot and a half. And we actually know that the water went down four amos. It actually would learn out exactly how much the water went down each day and thus when the bottom of the ark which was submerged 11 amas into the water actually touched ground on top of the highest mountain and then it continues there and Noah first opens up the window and he sends out the raven now the verse says clearly that the raven did not, did not go to look. It kept on flying around the ark. Now, our sages tell us different reasons why the raven refused to do the, the um, bidding of Noah to go ahead and see whether the, wor- the water has already gone down to the point where they can come out one say one of our sages teach us some teachings are that it did not trust that its wife its female raven would be faithful and not have a relationship with any of the other creatures another opinion says that the raven was not meant to serve noah but later on in history you'll learn in the book of the prophets that it was meant to serve a special mission for Elijah. Now, my question is, why would the raven all of a sudden be worried that its female raven is going to have an affair? And from here, we're going to talk about this later in a couple of moments, but here we learn out that it is the fault of oneself that they see in the other. You will recall that I told you that our sages tell us that three creatures broke the prohibition and had physical intercourse in the ark. And I told you that that was one of Noah's sons called Ham. That was the dog and that was the raven. Thus we understand that because the raven was not able to respect sexual boundaries, thus He projected his own faults upon his mate and upon all the other creatures. Interesting insight, which is going to help us very much when we talk about see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. Then later, Noah goes ahead and sends out the dove, and the dove goes out, and the dove comes back, and Noah takes the dove back into the ark and then after that he waits again another 7 days and again he sends out the dove and the dove comes back with the the um olive branch in its mouth and thus that became the universal sign of peace but interesting enough our sage want to know how was there an olive branch the entire world was submerged in boiling hot water and thus they deal with that issue just want to bring that forth. some say that israel was not submerged in water and thus it was able to get it from there different teachings now being that he saw the branch he realized that noah realized that the earth is showing he waits another seven days And again, for the third time, he sends out the dove, and the dove doesn't return at all. And thus Noah knows that it found comfortable places to be able to live. And he knew that the floods has completely declined and submerged back into the earth, and he can come out. And nevertheless, Noah cannot come out until the same God, God Almighty, who told him, to go into the ark, tells him to go out of the ark. And now I want to just follow again the spiritual metaphorical teaching that we learned out. From here we see that for the majority of the people, it's not a life of only prayer and only Torah study, but rather God tells us that you have come down into this world to go out of and engage with the world engage with the physicality of the world and thus bring your spirituality into the world rather than the world's spirituality darkening your spirituality and thus there's a direct commandment go out of the teva go out of (coughs) excuse me of the words of prayer and the words of torah study don't just pray and study torah all day Go out, engage with the world, engage with tikkun olam, the correction of the world, engage with transforming the physical world into a spiritual abode of God through using the physical objects in serving God, in helping mankind. Now, he goes out and he tells Noah, and, God, and Noah goes out and God. Blessed is Noah. Now, I want to share with you that if you look back in Genesis, when God created Adam, God told Adam you may eat from all the trees and vegetation besides the tree of knowledge. You do not find God telling Adam that he can eat the flesh of animals. Thus, you should know that from Adam until Noah for ten generations Mankind was obligatory vegetarian. Now, it is only by Noah that God allows him to eat from the animal and puts specific boundaries. He puts the boundary that you cannot rip off a limb of an an animal while it's alive. You have to first take its life and then you have to go ahead and eat from it. By the way, parenthetically speaking, I'm not going to get into the science of it or not, but it's interesting that you would think, oh, today we don't do that. We don't eat from living creatures. Just know, by the way, and again, this is not kosher, so it's for the people who are allowed to eat lobster, and Jews are not allowed to eat lobster, non-Jews are allowed to eat lobster, you know that lobster is not killed um, because it releases a chemical when it dies that way, and it would be unedible. But rather, lobster, while it's alive, is put into boiling hot water. And being that lobster has a very tough outside exterior, it's interesting to know that you must make sure that before you break off any piece of the lobster to eat it, uh, I'm talking for those who are not Jewish that are here with us, um, you have to make sure that it's dead. So yes, it is very practical to, to know that. Um, but either way, also blood. We're, we're told here that the blood represents the life force of an animal and you can the life force of all living creatures. And thus, we have to be careful and respectful. So while mankind is now allowed to eat from the animal kingdom, nevertheless, it must, it must do so in a humane way. Simply speaking, the human being does not descend into the animal kingdom and behave like an animal when it's going to eat, but rather the job of the human being is to elevate the animal kingdom into becoming part and parcel flesh and blood consciousness and serving and service of the human being. Now, with that being said, we go into the next story. Adam comes out and he wants to say thank you to God and he builds an altar And his common sense tells him that if God told me to take seven of the kosher species, obviously it's so that I can bring offerings to God from the kosher species. And he goes ahead and he brings in a sacrifice to God. And here's an interesting concept which we need to talk about as well. And that is in verse 21 in chapter 8 it says and God smelled the pleasant fragrance of the sacrifice and God said I will no more curse the land because of mankind and he gives a reason why and the reason why he says is because mankind from birth has evil imagination now I want to point out something very interesting if you go back to Genesis and you read the exact wording of the verse in which God says the reason of why He's going to bring a flood, He uses the exact same wording. For all the imagination of mankind is only evil all day long. So, in other words, He says that the reason why he's going to bring a flood and wipe out mankind and the living creatures is because the imagination of man is always evil. And now over here he says that the reason why he does, he will not hold the human beings accountable to the point of extinction is because they are instinctively, naturally, their ego center the egocentric, self-serving, instinctive survival mode leads them from birth to have bad imagination. So what's going on here? What changed? And if I'm um, God willing, tomorrow or, or Friday morning, I'm going to send out as I do every week. The, uh, I started again sending out my uh, discourse, my uh, lecture upon the, 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 uh, the Parsha. And over there, I'm going to talk about this. And that is that the process of an offering in the Holy Temple, first and foremost, was the experience of teshuva, repentance. And thus, what took place here is that Noah expressed and actualized the human capacity that even though we are driven by an egocentric self-centeredness, nevertheless, we also have deep within us the capacity and the consciousness of doing teshuva, of doing repentance. And thus, all of a sudden, the fact that we are instinctively self-centered is no more a reason to, God forbid, annihilate us because part and parcel of being egocentric is also to be able to bring forth these spiritual moments in which we become selflessly repentant. And this is also going to explain, I'm sorry, this is also going to explain the second concept, which is the rainbow. Why is the rainbow the sign of God's covenant that he will never annihilate the living creatures of the earth? And the answer is because the science of a rainbow is that it bounces off as it it rebounds off the clouds. When it travels, the light travels to the clouds and hits the droplets within the cloud. It is retracted and it reflects and then it acts as a prism and suddenly the light, the speed of light changes and the angle of light changes. And you have the rainbow and thus on a mystical level rebound light shows not the spirituality that comes from above to below such as the gift of torah and the gift of the 613 um, commandments but rather the rainbow the rebound light is the representation of the rebounding of divinity of the human heart, which is the act of repentance. Thus, the sign of the rainbow works hand in hand with the experience that God is sharing with us. That even though we have an egocentric, cruel side to us, but nevertheless, we also have that power of rebounding, having the divinity rebound through us in which we do repentance. Now, I want to share with you just very interesting stuff. You know, in the secular world, rainbow is a sign of blessing. We look at the rainbow and we glorify the rainbow. Oh, my God, there's a rainbow. It's going to be a beautiful day. And there's this metaphorical concept that at the end of a rainbow is a pot of gold. So I just want you to know that from the Jewish perspective, two things. When you see a rainbow, you have to make a blessing. And the blessing is, blessed are you, God, King of our God, King of the universe, who remembers his covenant and keeps his word. Number two, you should know that it is not proper to actually look and entertain yourself with the beauty of a rainbow, according to Jewish belief. Because if you think about it, what the verse says is that when God sees the distasteful behavior of any place in the world, and therefore God, so to speak, has this thought of bringing retribution and God remembers his covenant, and therefore places the the rainbow in the cloud, which ultimately means that when we see a rainbow, God is falling back on his covenant, uh, covenant as the only reason not to bring annihilation to any one area of the world. And thus the rainbow on a certain level is actually the sign of human shame in the sense that, oh my God, there we go again. We allowed our self-centeredness to get out of sync. And thus God would rightfully bring retribution, and he's not only because of the covenant he made, and thus he's showing us the rainbow in the sky. On this note, I want to share with you that there's a story in the Zohar of a person, a soul of a great sage that ascended to heaven And he wanted to go into the Garden of Eden, specifically into the chambers of the great Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. And before he was allowed in, they asked him one question. Was there ever a rainbow on the world in your lifetime? Because if there was, you cannot enter the chambers of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, who in his lifetime, there was no rainbow in the sky. And the commentaries explain what does this mean? What it means is that when the righteous foundation, when the righteous leader of the generation is doing what he's supposed to be doing spiritually and affecting his generation with faith and with ways of goodness and with ways of repentance, then in that person's lifetime, there would not need to be any rainbow in the sky. And thus we are taught, that in the lifetime of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, who was the composer and the author of certain parts of the Zohar, he was the compiler and and the author of certain parts. So in his lifetime, there was never a rainbow in the sky because his righteousness protected his generation. Thus, we see again that the rainbow in the sky is actually not a good sign. It means that we have to fall upon God's covenant and not of our own behavior to deserve not to be annihilated. Okay, just sharing with you these teachings. Now Noah comes out of the ark and Noah gets drunk. And his son Ham is the first one that sees him. And there's different commentaries. One of the commentaries say that he castrated his father. And why did he castrate his father? Because he said Adam and Eve had only two sons. And look what happened. The world wasn't large enough for both of them. One killed the other, Cain killed Abel. My father has three sons and I hear he's planning to have more children and thus he castrated him. That's one of the commentaries. Simply in the verse, all it says is that he saw him drunk and naked. He ran to his brothers and said, oh my God, you got to see that is drunk and naked in his tent. And then his two brothers, Shem and Yefet, they come and the verse testifies that they walked backwards. They turned their heads backwards when they got closer to Adam, to, to Noah. They even made a deeper conscious effort in looking away and thus they covered their father without seeing his nakedness. When Noah Finishes and he comes out of his drunken stupor, so he knows what happens. He curses Chum, and he goes ahead and he blesses Shem and Yefet. And the simple curse that he gave to his son—I mean, a father cursing his son—what he said was, "You will be a slave to your brother, just as you have taken away my walking stick of my elder years." And our sages explain, "What is the walking stick?" And it says that sometimes. A father and a mother will have another child as they get close to their elder years so that this younger child will be able to carry them through their elder years. And therefore, a lot of times the youngest child is metaphorically called a walking stick to the parents in their elder years. Okay, and then the Torah goes ahead and starts telling us the the lineage of the children of Noah It points out that it wasn't long before there was an offspring by the name of Nimrod. And Nimrod, again, um, started um, uh, living a life in rebellion against God's deity, against God's sovereignty. He started proclaiming himself as a god. And thus, again, the human race started becoming um, challenged with just being able to live humbly and surrender to God and not always focusing on self-reliance. Yes, we do the best we can, but like I mentioned before, we're very clear that what we do is just create empty vessels to receive God's blessing. So it always has to be with the help of God. And when a person starts thinking that he's going to outsmart the God's laws of nature, manipulate and become self-reliant, that is a form of idolatry. And then we have the final story of this week's Torah portion, which is that the people eventually got together and they wanted to build a tower, a uh, tower to rise up to heaven to fight with God. Now, they use a very interesting word. They say, and we will make for ourselves a name. So again, I just want to point out even though our sages give us insight that they wanted to make a beam to support the heaven from falling down again because that's how they interpreted the flood or that they wanted to wage a war against God. Ultimately speaking, what we're seeing is that mankind, after they were by no choice of their own, brought to their knees and humbled by the great flood, it is the way of mankind to immediately start restructuring and re-resurrecting his belief in self and self-reliance and egocentric living of dominance. And that is the consistent struggle that we have with God. And I want to just point out, the true miracle of the mana is that God said, don't collect today for tomorrow. Rather, live in a relationship with me and trust that I will provide for you every day what is needed for that day. In addiction recovery, the powerful slogan is, one day at a time. And what that means is, of course, you should have a 501K, and of course, you should put away for tomorrow, and of course, you shouldn't live recklessly, and of course, you should live balanced out and all that. But ultimately speaking, we need to know that God provides us for everything that we need for that day. Yes, we have to go out and work, but we cannot make self-reliance become the center of our universe rather we need to always have god in the center of our universe and i'll do what i have to do because i believe that god will bless the work that i do and always human beings will struggle with that human beings don't want to have to wake up in the morning with nothing more than faith and hope We want to wake up in the morning and know that our portfolio has quadrupled overnight. And that is, so to speak, na shem. Let us make ourselves a name. Let us become self-reliant. Let us not need to always rely on God. And thus, God says that he's going to foil their plan. Now, I want to point out to you that the people uh, who created the tower the verse clearly says that they spoke one language and they lived in harmony as one people and thus what a difference between them and the people of the flood the people of the flood it does not say the generation of the flood vehemently went to fight against god they didn't They just wanted what they wanted, when they wanted, with a total total sense of entitlement. And if I want what you have, I'm going to take what you have. And thus the Talmud tells us that the ultimate straw that broke the camel's back and caused the flood was actually simply thievery, stealing from one another. Now over here, seemingly, the human beings are going to lock horns directly with God, not with each other. They got along with each other. So one would think that going out directly against God is worse than going out against each other. And nevertheless, we see that the flood, which caused the near annihilation of all living creatures, was not because humans sinned against God, but because humans sinned against each other. And when it comes to the Tower of Babylon, the Migdal Babel, over there, we see that God does not annihilate them. God just brings confusion so that they will not be able to move on with their plan. The power of human respect to each other is even greater than the power of getting along with God. What an amazing teaching. Now, with that being said, The place is called Bavel, and Bavel means a whole mixture of confusion. And the reason is because this is where there came birth, the different people speaking different languages and not understanding each other. That is how God diffused their plot. And then the Torah simply lists the next 10 generations until it gets to Avram. Now, I want to just share with you that if you look at what took place, pretty much we talk about Adam, Cain, and Abel. We talk about just in lieu of the life of Cain, we talk about the life of his great-grandson to learn how Cain's life was ended. But simply, we go through 10 generations with just a listing. And this was the son of him who had this son who had that son who had this son. And then we do the same thing from Noah to Abraham. Our sages say, people that look for diamonds, they scoop up the, a whole bunch of dust with a sift, and they just shake it, allowing all the sand to fall through to find the diamonds. So too, God, with the generations of the people, God sifts through in the Torah, the generations to get to the diamond, and that's where he begins to elaborate on the lifetime and the blessings of these diamonds. Okay, that was in brief the Torah portion. I want to now share with you one interesting insight and, and the important lesson that we have. So, Ham did not worry. Let, let's talk, let's put aside the castration, let's just read the simple verses that the sin of ham was that he saw the drunkenness and the nakedness of his father and <clears throat> not only didn't he do anything about it but he went to gossip on his father to his siblings while shem and Yephet they were so careful in not seeing the nakedness and the drunkenness of their father now what is the deeper meaning and lesson of this story now i will connect this, for a moment, with another teaching of the Talmud in Tractic that talks about the laws of Passover. And over there it says that the Torah teaches us the importance of positive speech. Why? Because the Torah is very precise with exactly the amount of words and letters that it needs to say, never adding on additional letters. Thus, it would have been much easier for the verse to say that God told Noah to take from the pure species and the Tame species. Instead of saying pure and contaminated, it says pure and not pure, which leaves us with an extra 11 letters, if you would count the three letters of the word contaminated versus the letters that you need to spell out the words which are not pure. And we learn from here the importance of positive speech. So much so that in Hebrew you call a hospital Bet Cholim, the house of the sick. The Rebbe of saintly memory asked us not to call it the house of the sick, but rather to call it the house of recovery, of healing. Bet rof'im, bet rifu'ah. On top of that, the Rebbe was careful not to use the language of deadline, but rather due date. Again, always using the positive. I stood by the fabringens of the Rebbe. When the Rebbe would talk about the difference between good and evil, he would say there's good and there's the opposite of good. He wouldn't use the word evil the importance of positive speech. Now, with that clear in your mind, I want, and obviously, the Talmud goes on to say, what do you mean? The Torah says many times the word tameh, which means contaminated. And it answers, the answer over there is that when he's telling you a law, he has to speak concisely and precisely. But when he's telling you a story, even the story behind the law he will use the power of positive speech even though it's more letters than the preciseness of the letters. So again, when he's telling a law or when he's telling you a story. And obviously when he's telling you a law, he has to follow God, so to speak, has to follow his own rule, which says you should always teach in the shortest manner possible because from the teachings, there's going to be extrapolations. So make sure that you don't use extra words to be misinterpreted and misextrapolated. extrapolated Now, let's go back to this story here. Why did Ham see his father's nakedness? And why did Shem and Yafet not see? So their behaviors is actually a much deeper lesson. The Baal Shem Tov teaches us that every human being that you encounter is nothing more than a mirror. And thus you should know faults you see in others is actually only a reflection of faults that exist within yourself. And then he goes on to say, And therefore, the truly righteous never see faults in others. And obviously, I mean... Top of the line example is how Abraham stood and argued with God not to destroy Saddam and Gomorrah. Now, here's a couple of questions. Why must I say that the fault I see in others is only truly a reflection of the fault that I see in myself? And how can you say that righteous don't see the faults in others? if it's the job of every person to help the other correct themselves. Now, if the righteous do not see the faults that exist in others, they'll never be able to help others to do teshuvah, to correct themselves. So what is the logic in the righteous people never seeing faults in others? Now, to understand this, we need to understand that there's two ways of looking at a fault of another one is to see the negativity of the other the other way is not to see the negativity of the other but only to see that which needs correction so while i'm looking at the very same thing i'm looking at a person having anger issues. Just for example, do I see that the other person has a terrible, terrible character defect of rage? Or do I only see that the other person has the opportunity to work on a character asset that went wrong? Two ways of seeing do I see the negativity of the other or do I only see what there is for me to do in helping the other? Total two different paradigms. Cham, he saw the nakedness of his father. And the Kabbalistic reason for that is because in Hebrew, the word cham is heat and passion. Because on a Kabbalistic level, he comes from the spiritual source of the left side, meaning the power of strength, passion. And thus from that can eventually evolve the negativity of passion and strength in the sense of rage, in the sense of overindulgence. While Shem and Yafet, being that they themselves had no issues with that character defect, that character flaw. Thus, they never saw that in their father. The only thing they did see in their father was that as children, there was the honor of their father that they had to bring back, correct, by covering their father. But even while they're covering their father, what they never saw was a negative nakedness to their father. And thus we have here the amazing teaching of see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil is actually really the work of correcting one's own character defects because only through correcting your own character defects, only through correcting my own character defects, will I not see that character defects in others. Now, I wanna share with you the practicality of this. And I don't wanna get into the exact details of the example, but I wanna share with you that very often, and one specific case in mind, when I was still living in Fort Lauderdale, and I was giving a Parsha class, and we were talking about a certain character defect. And one of the people in the class who normally was a non-judgmental, free-spirited, loving guy, literally, you know, to me, he was uh, the epitome of the 60s and the way he lived his life. But all of a sudden, he went off the handle. And then later on, I was talking to him, like, why? and I found out because it was a personal issue to him, what she was dealing with with one of his brothers. And it just reinforced, why would I have a problem with another person's character defect? What would bother me that that guy is a miser? Why would it bother me that that guy has anger issues? And remember, we're not talking about that the guy unloaded his anger issue on me. We're just talking about the fact that that guy has an anger issue really bothers me. Why? Why would it bother me? Why would anyone else's issues bother me to a point where I can't even have a relationship with them? I can't even get into a discussion about that guy without doing some type of gossip about that guy? What's bugging me to the point of a real, real unsettled discomfort in me that that person has an issue? Why? Why is that bothering me? Why do I have to get flustered and upset And and, and unsettled by other people's choices, by other people's lifestyles, by other people's characteristics. Why? Live and let live. Just, you know, don't beat me up. Don't embarrass me. Don't attack me. And I'm okay with you. And and getting it even further, you know, even if a guy does lash out at me, why can't I just smile and realize, hey, 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 this is your issue, not mine. I'm okay. I'm okay with it. You know? Why, Why? Why are we not okay with other people's behaviors, other people's character defects? And there's only one reason. Think about it. You are bothered by something that is too close to home and personal to you. Something that I have zero issues with. And I find out that this other person does have an issue with, I'm not gonna be bothered. Yes, I'll talk to the person as a friend, I'll try to help him, try to help him deal with his character defects, but I'm never gonna to be to the point of, I will never get along with that guy. I will never talk with that guy. And don't you ever talk about him in my presence. That wouldn't exist. The only time that would exist is when his character defect is glaringly reflecting to me a clear vision of my own defect. And that is what it's all about. When I can be like Shem and Yafet and I have no issues with alcohol, I have no issues with nakedness, I have no issues with with shame or or, or anything lewd. It's not my issues. i got other issues in life. Then I, I would have no issues with seeing Noah naked and drunk. And thus you should know that the deeper lesson of this story is not only the fact that they looked away, but the reason why they were able to not see. And here I want to share with you, if you ever find yourself getting passionate about anything, I'm going to say the dirty word, politics. When you get passionate about politics, when you get passionate about you know, some injustice, when you get passionate about things, you should know that the Baal Shem Tov is telling me that God is bringing me a clear reflection of my faults. And here I want to share with you in closing what a beautiful teaching of the Rebbe. The Rebbe of blessed memory says, why does God have to do that? Why does God have to show me my faults in others? Why can't he just simply tap me on the shoulder and say, hey, Avrami, you've got an issue with overindulgence. Why? No. I have to see it in someone else. And then I have to stop and think and say, you know, I'm also overindulgent. And I got to start working on myself. Why? Why can't God just clearly have me look in the mirror and just see my character defects? So there are the quotes of verse in which the prophet says that self-love will always cover and conceal any self-fault. The reason why I see it in the other is because my ego protects me and doesn't allow me to see it in myself. Thus God works it out that I should see it in the other because there my biasness won't lie. I'll see the character defect for what it is. And then God knows that you're going to self-reflect in why did I see this in the other? Because I have it in myself. And just like I couldn't misinterpret and be biased when I saw it in the other, thus I have to accept not to be biased and see it in myself. Thus God has no other choice, so to speak, but to have us see it in, see our faults in others so that we can see it without the biasness of excuses and misinterpretation and, and making right what's wrong. So now that we know that, we know that we force God to show us our faults in others so we can see it objectively. Now when we do see it, we have two jobs. Job number one, concerning the other, don't see the fault, see what you can do to help. Concerning yourself, see the fault unbiased so that you can help yourself as well. I'm going to unmute. I'm going to shut the recording.